Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. This week, we're talking about Yemen. After almost three years, the war between a Saudi-backed coalition and Houthi rebels continues, claiming over 10,000 lives. The toll taken on the civilian population has been enormous. 17 million Yemenis are now dependent on humanitarian aid, a cholera epidemic has infected 900,000 people, and a recent port blockade by the Saudi coalition in retaliation for an attempted Houthi missile strike means that getting food into a country that is already on the brink of famine has got even harder. To shed some light on the scale of this humanitarian crisis, we'll hear from Jamie McGoldrick, the United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator for Yemen. He joins us by phone. We begin with the biggest challenges he and his team are facing. Well, I mean, on top of the fact that it's been a war that's been raging for almost three years and uh, the, f- the lack of attention to that and the, the knowledge of it by the international community outside a very few number of people, I think what's happened is with the blockade, which has been in place now for almost two weeks, where all the ports in the northern part of the country, where the, the bulk of our um, vulnerable populations are located, um, the port that we normally use is Hodaida on the Red Sea coast and the west coast, and that's the one that has the capacity to serve that bulk of population, both commercial and humanitarian. We have a, a UN verification inspection mission, which is a mechanism which operates offshore in, in sort of complicity with the Saudi coalition, which then screens vessels coming into that port, commercial and humanitarian, and they're allowed to pass through. It takes a long time. The port itself has been damaged uh, at the start of the war when the four main gantry cranes on the, the wharf side were, were destroyed completely. So we use uh, internal and mobile cranes to offload this stuff very slowly. Um, but now that port's closed and that's served our population. So now we have, right now, we've got two boats offshore. One is a food vessel and one is a, an actual a vessel full of uh, vaccines and medical equipment for cholera and for the outbreak of diphtheria and other preventable diseases in the southern part of the country. So we have now been forced by this blockade to seek alternative routes. The alternative routes that are available to us are the southern port of Aden and the northern port uh, in Jizan in Saudi Arabia. But the road transport up from both and down from uh, Saudi Arabia is one long, very tortuous and three very insecure and we've estimated that, that it would cost us between 50, around 30 to $50 per metric tonne extra to move that stuff up. And we just don't have the money anyway because we're busy trying to feed a caseload, uh, serve a caseload of people of 7 million on a monthly basis for food and up to 12 million people for um, health, water, sanitation and other support. And we've got a cholera outbreak, which is almost 1 million people. And at the same time, we've got a famine looming for 7 million people in the country. So that's the situation and, and the change in the last uh, the last week. So things have gotten desperate. Um, prices have gone through the roof. People's purchasing power was non-existent anyway. Now they can't afford And These horror, horror stories you're hearing and sometimes even seeing about people making life and death choices. Do I feed my families or do I use that money or sell my cow and sell other assets I have to make sure my sick children get to the hospital when they have to go and pay and pay for the medicines because there's nothing available in the hospital because 50% of the hospitals no longer function. So these are the desperate situations that people face on a daily basis. And now trying to get water with fuel being in short supply, there's only 10, maybe 20 days of diesel left in the country. And we use that for keeping the hospitals open, the generators, for pumping water, for delivering water. And this is essential to prevent another reoccurrence of this massive uh, cholera outbreak. So that, that is like where it stands at the moment. 
And um, you spoke about the, the blockade. What has been the relationship like negotiating then with the Saudi coalition? And how do you manage to get the kind of the UN's uh, voice across? I mean, I think there's a number of different levels of advocacy and sort of public uh, opinion making going on at the moment through the media, obviously. But statements have gone out yesterday with the WHO, uh, WFP and the UNICEF put a joint statement out. There's been uh, statements by, say, the Children Fund, uh, Oxfam and others collectively and individually, basically highlighting the, sort of, the plight of the people in the country anyway, and what this now two-week-old uh, blockade has done and is doing for them. And the estimates of uh, you know 50,000 children extra dying by the end of the year, and other numbers which are unimaginable when you think about it, but they're happening. And the Saudis we've spoken to and said, look, uh, the impact of your blockade is only going to exacerbate an already very precarious situation. So all we're asking is for, well, you have concerns, and we recognize those concerns of missiles and other things being um, flown into Riyadh and other parts of Saudi Arabia. The the people in Sana would say it's a tit for tat for the airstrikes that are taking place there. Regardless of all of that, I mean, that's another type of negotiation. And the, the political parties, the political actors, then they have to get back on the table, and that's not happened for over well over a year. What we're asking for is for the humanitarian dimension to remain separate from that and not to be instrumentalized by the parties. And that's been the case. And so what we're trying to say is keep it away from the military and the political battle. The humanitarian something something that should be kept isolated and sealed off and addressed properly. And this blockade is, is connected to the politics and connected to the military and connected to the overall fight of trying to beat the Houthis or beat whomsoever and get a victory that way. And there's no military victory possible in the Yemen context. There's been no ground, significant ground made in the last two years and the, the parties are bogged down. And what's happening is they're using other tactics to try and squeeze an already very uh, terrible, horrific situation. And uh, what we're trying to do is to appeal to the humanitarian nature and humanitarian, the, the, the IHL dimensions of uh, governments and member states to try and get them to support us and trying to get this blockade lifted. And um, you've been working on this, on Yemen specifically for uh, just coming up to two years, is that right? Yeah, two years now. Yeah. What, what, what kind of deterioration have you seen in, in that time in the situation there? Well, I think that there's probably um, a number of dimensions to it. The main one is obviously the conflict has continued to ravage uh, many parts of the country, that the war still goes on in many places. Uh, the military conflict uh, is bogged down and has gone nowhere. I would say also the other thing that's happened is the political process has come to a complete halt. There's some tinkerings in the margins, but there's nothing significant taking place, and that has to change. On the, the actual impact of all of that on, on the population, as, as the politics fail, the humanitarian suffers. And what we are facing now is uh, the number of population in the two years I've come here who have become vulnerable has gone from about um, 6 million in acute need to about 12 million now. And that's who we've identified most recently in our humanitarian needs overview. And then off the back of that as well, you've got um, the vulnerable groups within that, that large number who are all the more um, in need. Those numbers have grown as well, especially for the nutrition side of things and the health state of side of things. As the, the famine kicks in in more and more places and more and more malnutrition, especially among the young and the sick, those numbers have grown dramatically. And in that time, salaries haven't been paid for over a year. So health workers and education workers don't come to work and have to try and find funding, money to feed their families. So we struggle to get those uh, those services up and running. The, the international communities ask more and more to take over those services. We don't have the mandate and the resources and the ability to do that. And so the, the services we can provide are for a very vulnerable group. The other aspect I would say is that the, the economic collapse of the country, all over the country with salaries not being paid, you're talking about 7 million people, or 7 to 10 million people suffers according to the civil service salaries not getting paid. And then so purchasing power disappears, 
the shortage of goods coming into the country and the you know the sort of the, the currency exchange rate makes it very very difficult to be able to survive and buy basic commodities. Commodities such as cooking gas and fuel are in very short supply and very very expensive for everybody. So there's a number of threats to people's lives and livelihoods, and it's a, a direct consequence of the conflict, but it's also an indirect consequence of the collapsing systems and the collapsing humanitarian economic situation as well. Uh, Jamie, you're talking about how the the international community has you know, more pressure on them now to step up. Do, do you think that uh, the UN has got enough resources and what, what the UN and international community be doing more to assist? Well, I mean, we're, we're only, from the, the appeal we had last year, which is asking just over $2 billion, uh, we've, we're less than 60% funded, we're about 57% funded at the moment. So obviously resources are needed. The more money we get, the more resources, the more we can address the needs of population in the country. We do have access to large parts of the country and probably 80 plus percent of the population who we need to serve so we've got the access, more or less, where there's interruptions and there's interference with that. We've got the, the capacity and we've got the network to deliver. We need, the, we need the resources from the international community and the donor community to help address though, this uh, growing need. And let, let's be honest, uh, even if the, the peace was to break out tomorrow, the humanitarian dimension is so immense that this would have to, that humanitarian funding would have to happen and continue to happen for another two years to just take away the backlog and the residual uh, the impact of the conflict and the impact of the economic uh, collapse of the country. It, it must be frustrating the lack of headlines that this war has made. If, if there's something a listener should take away from here, what's something they may have missed or something that you'd want to really underline about this that perhaps doesn't doesn't usually get highlighted? Well, I would say, I mean, the main picture is the fact that I mean, Yemen is not in the headlines for a number of reasons. One, it's because the people involved in Yemen Secondly, and the people who are directly involved, people supporting the involvement in, in the Yemen conflict. It's also in the region. I think there's there's a lot of um, other conflicts which are more headline grabbing, such as Syria and what's happening in Iraq, for example. So we find it very hard to compete compete with that there. And the other point is the fact that media is not allowed to come to this country. There's no uh, commercial flights into the northern part of the country. You cannot come up from the southern part of the country easy. And in the UN, we used to bring in journalists to show them and let them take note of what's happening. Both the uh, human rights organizations and the media are no longer able to fly the UN flights. And the Sana airport has been closed for a year from, for commercial flights. So very difficult to get all of that out, given the context. And it's only when you get something like a cholera outbreak or something like a famine threat or something like this blockade that brings the international attention to it momentarily. And in, in a week's time, this will this will have gone. The blockade issue will probably hopefully have passed. But the ongoing deteriorations, uh, you know, the sort of grinding poverty and grinding suffering that goes on, that's that's out of the public's eye. So what I would say is, think everybody should think that if you just close your eyes and think that if you've got a room full of ten people, seven of those are suffering, and in Yemen that's the case. Every seven out of ten people who don't know. You know how where they'll be next year. They don't know what prospects they have for children. They don't know if their children will survive this. And of that, there's about seven million people who cannot tell you today where will I get the money to feed my children tomorrow. And that, in this day and age, in the Middle Eastern setting, in a country of this kind, in a region of this nature with such wealth, it's it's extraordinary. It's outstanding, and it's it's ridiculous. You were in Washington recently. What was your sense of of the level of awareness there, or the level of desire to, I guess, make an impact on on the situation there? Well, I think that there's a, I mean, there's, I think like a lot of capitals, there's lack of coherence over how they view Yemen. 
I think there are parts that are more in tune with what's happening and there's more people willing to look for a solution to it. But there's other interest in the capitals, including Washington, which really don't have an interest in changing anything because there are other interests in the region they have to protect, safeguard or strengthen. And that could be relationships, it could be other things as well. So I think in Washington, I found uh, two things. One, a much better understanding of the dimension of the crisis since last year. And maybe that's because of the advocacy around the Hodai report and other crisis points. We try to get the messages out. But, I, but the other thing I did notice as well was that, that the, the actual people who could change it are probably not in place. And I think a lot of it must be in the White House rather than other parts of the administration because I, you don't get a sense that there is people with a, an understanding. Not, 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 they have an understanding, but they don't have a vision of how they will, will take it forward. There are people who I met in Washington who were very well versed and very well placed, but I think they are not enough a mass of them to actually make the difference. People of the senators, the Murphys and the Lews and uh, the Todd Youngs, these guys, they, they're all fighting a very strong battle. But I think the traction is probably not as big as it could be. And I think until you take it to the White House, um, I think that's what, what needs to, to happen. And I don't think that's the case at the moment. So I, I found a lot of people trying to validate their understanding of the crisis through the, the way they, they ask questions and they wanted more information. But I just think that there needs to be, needs then to be more proactive. We see things happening in the, the House. We don't maybe think to see things happen in Congress. I think things have to move, move in a different way. And maybe, and hopefully, this blockade will bring attention again to some of the futility that's here in, in, the, in Yemen and people's roles and support roles to the crisis and maybe find a, a better solution. Because it's only through pressure from uh, people who can influence the parties to get a political solution because there's no other solution to this. The humanitarians can't save the day because we only try to save lives until such times and there's no military option that's taken us anywhere positive or to a conclusion. No, I mean, I would just say that, you know, that this uh, blockade is just basically another chapter in a very desperately badly written book and um, the story of Yemen's last two years is, is just it's the blackest you could get and I think that people have to recognise for what it is and understand that it's a man-made crisis. This is not something organic. It's not something that just happened. This is man-made. And because of that, the men that make it or the people that make it can unmake it by taking better decisions on the political, better decisions on the military, and better solutions ultimately on the humanitarian. And that's the only way we're going to move forward with this. Otherwise, we'll be back next year talking about bigger numbers and more tragedy. And that was the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Yemen, Jamie McGoldrick, joining us from Amman. We're at the end of this week's show, but look out for another coming on Monday. Until then, you can contact me at cquinn at csis.org or on Twitter. As always, thanks for listening.